Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. You going to continue making a lot of money off of this, do you think? Basically, as long as you got people that want to learn about all this and they want to hear it, you know. As long as it's violence, it's going to be rap music, gangster rap music, or whatever. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb. As we celebrate hip-hop's 50th birthday, I wanted to celebrate one of hip-hop's greatest coming together of creative energy that shocked the world. Not only an amazing group, but also an incredible legacy of solo projects. I'm going to explore the numerous aspects behind this group. The one visionary who set this off, but who also set off a very long legacy of music and art. This is the story of Eazy-E and N.W.A. Part 1, The Foundation of the Legacy. We made it all right for artists to be themselves. You know, you didn't have to be squeaky clean to be just as big or bigger than the squeaky clean artist. N.W.A. is one of hip-hop's greatest groups and a group that made a whole subgenre of hip-hop mainstream globally. N.W.A. Not only changed music, but we changed pop culture all over the world. This story I'm about to tell was literally a major motion picture straight out of Compton. So there's a lot to dig in here from their humble beginnings. Basically, I started to just uh, start a record label and like recruit new talent. And I ended up rapping myself. Then it happened, I guess, which I wasn't going to never rap anyway. To surprising success. We were only trying to make a few bucks. We wasn't yeah, gold. That's it. That we had even no idea thought. what was about to happen. Plus, an endless stream of drama. You know, you get tired of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, somebody wants to come forward and make a rap. Talked about niggas shooting dice and uh, bitches in wet t-shirts and things like that. And we said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We don't want to see that projected in our city. I have some lyrics here from some of the songs that you've done in your career. And to be very honest, many of this, much of this I can't even say on television. But I want to read some of this to you. Um, so what about the bitch that got shot? F her. You think I care about a bitch? I ain't a sucker. Right. Um, songs That's titled... That's not talking about women, though. What is it talking about? A lot about? of them bitches. It's a difference. Nobody ever sued, so obviously they were just using it as an excuse in Compton or wherever to say, you know, we got rid of the white guy, you know, because, you know, he was helping easy steal or whatever. I said, we got to get your contracts. So they gave him the run around, told him he couldn't have his contract. The lawyers told him he couldn't have his contract, but the lawyers was a record company lawyer. Right. So I went to the lawyer, I went to the record company, I said, okay, you got to give Dre his contract. Actually got to give it to me. I told him I got to give Dre his contract, not now, but right now. Yes, all of that happened. And for the first time since Strange Fruit from Billie Holiday, the federal government threatens a recording artist over their lyrics. Then, after two and a half albums, it all falls apart. I left because I was like, this ain't gonna work. They're not gonna fix it. What's your relationship with uh, Ice Cube and uh, Dr. Dre? Or do you have any relationship with them? Yeah, we cool. Me, Cube, and Dre, we all cool. You know what I'm saying? It's just, I don't talk to Eric. Like, you know what I'm saying? We don't talk. See, Dre now works for somebody that used to work for him. And how he claims that Death Row is his, it's somebody else. It's a bodyguard that used to work for Dre. 
Meanwhile, another infamous character in hip hop that would change the culture for the worst is born. What happened was I got Dre. Right. And starting a label, they wanted to name the label Future Shock. That was, that was just a name they kicked around. And I wanted to go death row. And one of the saddest part of this story, the shocking announcement that Eazy-E had AIDS and his sudden death right after that. Did you know he was HIV positive? No, we never knew. He must, you know, he kept his business to himself, I guess. In this year of reflection on how much hip hop has shaped American culture, we must delve into the backstory of Eazy-E and N.W.A. And this is their story. I'm Eazy, your host for the evening. I'm interviewing Dr. Dre. <clears throat> how you doing, Dre? How do you feel about Janet Jackson's music? I love her music. I love her. You know, I wouldn't mind spending on a nice romantic night. Do you think she'll be big as her brother? Yeah, of course. Like a hundred million records or something? A nice romantic night. Janet Jackson, we'll go get something from Burger King or something. Burger King. She don't even like Burger King, eh? McDonald's did. So okay. One of the two. Then we'll take a ride down Compton Boulevard, romantic cruise. That'll cruise, be all right. Cruise down Crenshaw. Yeah, get to the pleasure principles. I think you'll be in control? I hope I'm in control. Then later on that evening, we'll be making love in the rain. Ah, I can see it all now. Soon as she lays eyes on me. She don't want you. <laughs> A fun moment between West Coast childhood friends Easy e and Dr. Dre, who formed a partnership that would usher in a new genre of hip-hop, which at that time was a New York City art form that everyone else tapped into. This partnership of creativity would morph into incredible art over the last 27 years. Let's think about it for a minute. Eazy-E created N.W.A. Out of that group, there were four solo artists who would branch out to even greater success. Ice Cube would release numerous multi-platinum albums, then parlay that into acting and his first film, Boys in the Hood was inspired by an Easy e song that he wrote. Then he would give us the Friday films, Players Club, the Barbershop films, the Ride Along films. Ice Cube would go on to star in 40-plus film roles, which brought in over a billion dollars in receipts at the box office. And Ice Cube is just one part of this creative legacy. Dr. Dre would go on to start several other music companies, and introduced the world to Snoop Dogg, The Dog Pound, Eminem, 50 Cent, and give us classic albums like The Chronic, Doggy Style, 2001, Get Rich and Die Trying, and would sell over 300 million records. He recently sold a portion of his catalog that he controlled for over 200 million. He also created the highly successful Beats by Dre headphones. This is the Eazy-E NWA legacy. Eazy-E would be responsible for Bone Thugs and Harmony, who would go on and sell over 50 million records. Then there are the next generation legacy artists who were inspired by Eazy-E, Dr. Dre, and the NWA crew. Like a young child in Compton who watched this play out and then would have a historic career himself, Kendrick Lamar. So how do we get here? This is their backstory. Let's go back to the early 80s. As I've explored in this podcast and numerous episodes, the epicenter of hip-hop's origin is New York City, most specifically the borough of the Bronx. The genre started out in the 70s and started to have a bigger success in the late 70s and early 80s as it started to spread across the country. In the early 80s, rap's first supergroup, Run DMC, would break ceilings and open up hip-hop to massive audiences. Run DMC looked like the audience. No gimmicks or costumes, just a couple of b-boys. 
in each city across the country, B-boys and B-girls would automatically relate to Run DMC. They would be the first rappers to headline a major U.S. hip-hop tour in the early 80s. As they hit each market, they would inspire and engage other young people who have visions of being music stars themselves. They hit their pinnacle in 1986 with the release of Raising Hell. This was their third album and the biggest in their career, going triple platinum, and the first hip-hop album to sell this much this quickly. Their mashup with rock group Aerosmith would lead to a huge crossover hit in Walk This Way. And it would actually reinvent the group Aerosmith themselves, who were basically done at that time, but Walk This Way would change the trajectory of their career. Every summer, Run DMC would be on tour. And this summer, in the summer of 86, they would embark on the Raisin Hell tour. It was one of the biggest hip-hop tours of that era, featuring the gods of rap along with Run DMC, Houdini, and LL Cool J, with a baby act, the Beastie Boys, who will go on to release their debut album, Licensed to Ill, in the fall of 1986. That album would go on to go diamond, which is 10 million sold. For the Beastie Boys, this tour was the setup for their historic debut success. It was also a tour that really helped hip-hop expand beyond Black audiences. When you would travel around the country... This was a general market event when you would bring Run DMC to your town. Run DMC were hip-hop rock stars slash royalty. Every stop was an event. Their presence on tour would also spark an idea of change for one young man in the Los Angeles suburb of Compton who was living a very dangerous and violent life. These Run DMC tour stops every summer throughout the 80s would spark creative energy. And on Sunday, August 17th, 1986, the Raisin Hell Tour will return to the Los Angeles area, but this time not in the cozy downtown L.A. Coliseum, but the Long Beach Arena. What authorities didn't realize was how dangerous the gang problem was in Los Angeles counties, specifically Long Beach, Compton, Watts, South Central. These are the areas where African-Americans migrated to and the gang proliferation, along with the crack epidemic, was happening in real time so fast that leadership and the police were totally caught off guard. That August Raising Hell concert went on as planned with the Beastie Boys and Houdini. But during Houdini's performance of Friends, a wave of gang members started to attack people in the audience. Then a full-on fight ensued between the various gang factions that all came together to see this concert. 40 people were injured. Numerous people were arrested. The police shut the show down and Run DMC never performed. This was worldwide news at the time. The media blamed the group, but the group had warned authorities beforehand to get more security. They had come to L.A. numerous times and saw the things that were happening and told them, you guys need to be prepared, but they weren't. And this was the beginning of the painting of hip hop as violent and an art form that gang members like and an art form that wasn't safe. That narrative started to develop during this period. But this outcome was not a surprise. If you lived in that region, you already knew the gang violence was out of control. A major concert like this bringing gang factions from all over the region was doomed from the start. At that time, most did not know what was happening, especially outside of Los Angeles. There wasn't really a megaphone telling the true life stories, most specifically the gang stories of Los Angeles. That 22-year-old outgoing drug dealer, Eric Wright, who was making upwards of $250,000 a year, was looking for a pivot. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let me tell you about Eric Wright. He was born September 7th, 1964 in Compton, California. His family had working class roots. His father was a postal worker and his mother was a school administrator. But before we go any further, I want to tell you a little bit about Compton, California, known as the hub city due to the convenience of commerce opportunities in that location. After the devastating Watts riots in the mid-60s, many middle-class Black families moved to Compton to escape the violence, but that would spark a devastating series of events. Two decades ago, Compton, California was a lily-white affluent bedroom community known as the hub city. Today, it is known as the most black city west of the Mississippi. What happened in between was classic of what has happened in several other cities across the nation. As blacks moved into Compton, whites fled, as usual, to the suburbs, leaving the now over 70% black population to inherit a city overburdened with basic economic problems. Compton is situated 12 miles outside of Los Angeles and just next door to the well-known community of Watts. It is surrounded by eight small towns that have managed to preserve their white majority population. Compton is a city that typifies the frustrations, problems, and aspirations of majority black cities and administrators across the country. So we have the perfect storm of continued white flight from a once suburban conclave in Compton, which then strips the community of tax resources. Then you have the economic downturn of the 70s. And then you have Reaganomics' failed trickle-down economy of the 80s. Plus, you add in a major drug crisis as crack cocaine abuse and sales infiltrate the community. The already historic gang problem only got worse. If you ever watched the show Snowfall, they really paint the picture of this area and what was going on at that time. Many of the young men in these communities would end up in the penal system or dead. With limited education and a very dangerous environment, Compton was not a safe space to grow up. Eric Wright dropped out of high school in the 10th grade and started selling drugs. He had an older cousin who was dealing and taught him the ins and outs of the game. His cousin would tragically get murdered, and that would be a turning point and one of the main reasons Easy wanted to do something else with his life. During his early years in Compton, Easy e would meet Andre Young in middle school, and there was no musical connection yet. Andre Romel Young was born in Compton on February 18, 1965. His middle name was derived from his father's R&B group, the Romels. His parents were married for a short time, but soon divorced. Dre, although born in Compton, spent a lot of his time in South Central L.A. and moved around a lot as a kid and went to several different schools, and he was not a great student. However, music was Dre's focus. He was a DJ, inspired by the legendary Grandmaster Flash. As hip-hop was taking shape on the West Coast, he would attend a local club, Eves After Dark, to watch DJs and entertainers of that era. He would eventually become a DJ at Eves After Dark and would give himself the name 
Dr. J after his favorite basketball player, the legendary Julius Irving. But then he pivoted to Dr. Dre. He would become a very popular and accomplished DJ, even spinning on the radio on America's first 24-hour hip-hop station, K-Day. Yep, you heard me. The first hip-hop radio station, all hip-hop all day, was in L.A., and that was K-Day, not New York. In the back of Eve's After Dark, there was a four-track studio. Dre and Anthony Carabay, a.k.a. DJ Yella, would make demos. The owner of the club, Alonzo Williams, was also a very popular West Coast DJ, and he would hire Dr. Dre and DJ Yella to do events. Early West Coast hip-hop was much different than what was coming out of New York. The music was called Electro Hop, fast beats with an electric feel, similar to Planet Rock from the Soul Sonic Force or Orbit or the producer in the 80s, Arthur Baker, who made a lot of amazing songs like Looking for the Perfect Beat, just that electric pop sound. Electro Hop was inspired by the legendary German group Kraftwerk, who had a hit called Numbers and Trans Europe Express. There were several electric-based hit songs in the 80s on the pop side. West Coast hip-hop heads connected with this type of music first. If you watch the movie Breaking during that era, you'll see some of this. So this DJ Lonzo Williams, who was at this club, Eve After Dark, would create this group, the World Class Record Crew, which was full of DJs, him, Dr. Dre, and DJ Yella, plus a young R&B singer, Michelle A., and they would release a song called Surgery, which was sort of a salute to DJ Dr. Dre and was a local hit selling 50,000 copies. Two turntable speakers and a mixer will rock your party wherever you be. Calling Dr. Dre to surgery. And the group signed a deal with Epic Records, which at the time was home to the biggest artist in music, Michael Jackson, an artist you may know named Charday, Tina Marie, Culture Club, Wham, and Luther Vandross. They would release two albums, one of which had a cover that will come back to haunt Dr. Dre, but I'll get into that a little bit later in the pod. They weren't really that successful. Epic dropped the world-class record crew, but locally, they had a lot of respect because they were one of the first groups out of L.A. to get a deal. And the irony of it all was on the back end, after they got released from Epic, they would have their best success with Michelle A. as the lead in a song called Turn Off the Lights. So the success of this song catapulted the group across the country. And it was really this R&B sound versus the electro pop sound that was working for them. So if you saw the movie straight out of Compton, you saw the tension between Lonzo and Dr. Dre and this whole R&B, R&B, R&B. It was based on Turn Off the Lights because... They made a lot of money off of that, and they toured all over the country. This conflict between Lonzo and Dr. Dre would only get worse. Dre and Yellow wanted to do more hardcore hip-hop songs. During this time, Eazy-E was dealing with the death of his cousin, who put him onto the game. When his cousin died, Eazy knew where the drug stash was and any extra cash that was sitting around. So the proceeds from all of that were the foundation for Ruthless Records but he had to put a team together. He knew that Lonzo had connections at McCola Records because that's where Lonzo put his music out at. And at McCola Records was a man named Jerry Heller who had a lot of history in the music business. So Easy paid Lonzo $750 for the connect. $750 in the mid 80s was a lot of money. Jerry Heller would take an instant liking to Eazy-E and they formed a business partnership. Well, we were very close. We lived next door to each other. We ran a company together. 
We each had our own areas of responsibility and authority. And we built, next to David Geffen, we built the biggest empire in the history of, of the music business. Now the hard work was coming to build this label, but Easy had a vision. I was uh, probably about 17 when I joined NWA. We were all in different groups. Well, a group that, that Dre was in called Direct and Crew, Dre and Yellow was in that group. And they were kind of like making the most noise in LA out of all of us. Lonzo, who ran the Wrecking Crew, really wouldn't let Dre do the hardcore records that he, he really started to want to do. So me and Dre started doing mixtapes, and I would do the hardcore raps on the mixtapes talking about the neighborhood. Well, Easy, which is Dre's old friend, got one of the tapes, tracked Dre down, and was like, yo, you know, I've been hustling on the street. I don't want to flip some of this money. I want to have a label and I want to call it Ruthless Records. He had these groups that he was trying to get on Ruthless Records and he was like, we should do an all-star group. This is what Easy said. We should do an all-star group. You know, we just do the side group, hardcore records. So we all ended up quitting our groups and just stayed with us forming this all-star group. And uh, one day they came to pick me up and you're saying, what are we going to call the group? And uh, I said, what are we going to call it? He said, NWA. I'm like, what that mean? When he told me what it meant, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. You know, from there, we just was tight. And we just was just figuring out what did we need to do to start making noise in, in the hip-hop scene. So let me tell you about O'Shea Jackson. He was born on June 15th, 1969 in the Westmont section of Los Angeles. During his high school years, he was bused from the inner city to the suburban high school with more affluent students, and that daily 40-mile bus ride would infuriate him as he would learn a lot about class and how the socioeconomic policies affected his community. And again, if you watch the beginning of Straight Outta Compton, they kind of show him on the school bus looking out and their kids and their BMWs and their Mercedes Benz. And he's on the school bus back to the hood and the gangbangers jump on the bus when they get back into the neighborhood with the gun. So you could see the, the differences. And it just really infuriated Ice Cube. Cube had a cousin in Oakland who was also a rapper who would get national acclaim. His name was Del LaFunky Homo Sapien. Sir Jinx who was Dr. Dre's cousin, lived next door to Ice Cube, and Jinx was a producer. Jinx and Cube formed a group called CIA, Crew in Action. They put out a local cut called My Posse, produced by Dr. Dre. My posse. My posse. Cube would My also posse. do a side project with Dr. Dre called The Stereo Crew, and they got a single deal on Epic, on the back of the world-class record crew before they had gotten dropped from the label. And they did a song, the stereo crew called She's a Skag. It's really interesting to hear Ice Cube's voice here before we would hear the NWA and Ice Cube, the solo artist. Now, neither of these situations were working. Plus the stress of this battle between Lonzo and Dre would hit a turning point you see, Dre had been arrested twice for minor offenses, and Lonzo would always bail him out and then add more debt to their business arrangement. Then Dre was arrested for a third time, and Lonzo refused to bail him out. So Dre called Easy, and Easy came to the rescue and bailed him out, 
Again, this plays out and straight out of Compton. But he also pitched Dre on coming together with him to form a label. Q breaks it down a little bit further. Dre, because he was right down the street. So Dre, I used to help him write. We start writing. And then that's when we start doing the neighborhood shit, like talking about the hood and talking about that. Doing those mixtapes, Easy got a hold of one of them. Bought one from the swap meet out here. He was like, who's putting this together? Steve Yano says, Dr. Dre. And then Easy was like, I want to be a manager. So he was looking for groups to manage. He had found this group. I was 15. He paid me to write this group of songs. They name was Homeboys Only. I wrote the group of song called Boys in the Hood. They didn't like it because they didn't understand the West Coast flavor. So the song was going to go to waste. So the group from New York, Homeboys Only, didn't understand Boys in the Hood. Wow, what a mistake on their part. But Dre thought this was an opportunity for Easy e to rap, and he would coach him through it, and that's how Easy started rapping. Once again, straight out of Compton movie chronicles this moment in the history of N.W.A. On March 3rd, 1987, Ruthless Records would release Boys in the Hood. Dr. Dre coached Easy through the song frame by frame. The song was an instant hit locally as Easy was selling singles out of his car. He would use his drug proceeds to go down to McCola Records and get singles printed weekly. Later in 1987, the first formation of an album with an all-star cast of rappers, which would also include Tracy Lynn Curry, a.k.a. the D.O.C., who was from Dallas and in sort of a Dallas all-star group called the Fila Fresh Crew. Tracy would relocate to L.A. to be closer to Dre. The D.O.C. would have a major impact on Ruthless Records expansion. But on November 6, 1987, Eazy-E releases this all-star album. It was N.W.A. and the Posse. There were 11 songs on this album, six of whom were with N.W.A. members. This was considered technically their first album, and it would sell in Southern California. Some of the songs in this album would end up on Straight Outta Compton remixed. During this period, Eazy-E and Jerry Heller were working hard to secure a label deal for Ruthless. Highland Records were really courting them. And actually, they went to Island Records and were like, you know, we want 300,000. Island Records was like, no, we're stuck on 250. The A&Rs and everybody wanted us to do this deal. But the business manager at Island was like, we're going to stick to 250. And Easy really wanted to go to Priority because Priority was an L.A.-based label. But also they would allow Ruthless label cover to be read. So they signed with priority. There was also an additional distribution deal with Atlantic Records. One of the first ruthless non-NWA hits was from a girl group called Just Jammin' Fresh and Death. But you may know them as JJ Fad, who had a huge hit in 1988 called Supersonic. Supersonic. This song would tap into the electro hop sound of hip hop that was flourishing in the West Coast, kind of what I brought up earlier. The song was produced by the Arabian Prince, who was another local rapper producer that was well known, and Dr. Dre. MC Ren would join the group. NWA is now formed, and the process to making music was just beginning under the leadership and vision of Eazy E. We've been knowing him for like knowing for a while. Like I knew him before we started even doing music. Just a cool brother, man. Smart. I mean, he was ahead of his time. He was, yeah, you know, he was taking what he did on the street. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he took he took all of that street knowledge and hustling on the streets and brought it over to this thing that we was doing. You know what I'm saying? And uh, 
super smart, creative. I can say one thing he did, me and you was mad. We was trying to get on island, remember? And we mad. Oh, man, we want to get on. He was holding off for priority. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. said, because I want the label red, and I want it, you know, he want the label. Yeah. And nobody else would do that. Yeah, wait, island, wait, 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 island wait, wait, Records wanted to records on the records. <laughs> island Records wanted to, wanted to make it. Island Records yeah. with NWA, and, he, and we was like, what the fuck? Let's go get this yeah, money, he man. he held and, off. And you know what else is crazy about him? That I used to, we used to be in interviews, and I'd be looking at him like he's crazy sometimes. He'd do interviews, and he'd be like, yeah, NWA is an all-star group. <laughs> Before we even blew up, and I was looking like, all-star group? <laughs> like, we ain't did nothing, but it's like he, he knew before we knew, you know what I mean? Like, what was going to pop. Straight visionary. Yeah. It's like he had faith. Straight visionary about, I don't want no, I want the shit hard. I want it hard, 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 hard. It's a trip. He put out J.J. Fad first, but the Ruthless was going to be the hardcore label until <laughs> JJ Fab blew up and he's like, you know what? He probably could do more than just hard shit. He probably could do other shit, you know. So, but he was just, I just remembered him like, I want these kind of records on Ruthless. You know, he was specific. He wanted it rough, hardcore shit. It's like, man, them other raps y'all got without the hardcore shit, you know, say that for the side, but we want the rough shit. Because we wanted to make records. So it was like, Easy was down to pay for us to go in the studio and make records. We was going to make the shit hard like, like he wanted it. Now that the group was set, it was time to record the official Straight Outta Compton album. They took a different path to recording, unlike other groups in this era. You know what I mean? We didn't have no A&R. We didn't have nobody. We, we, we were the A&R. Our A&R is these two motherfuckers right here. You know what I mean? So it's like, it get past these two and easy. Yeah, so it's like, he no, wanted it no, harder, no, You harder, can say harder. some crazier shit than that. that that's, that's how the A&R went. <laughs> so it's just a trip to see how big it's grown. We had our own style. We thought it was just going to be ours and everybody else was going to do them. But it's like, we turned hip-hop on his ear a little bit. We 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 changed the trajectory right. of hip hop. Yeah. yeah, a lot. We was like, how many times can we say nigga? <laughs> how many times did we say it last time? We gonna say it more this time. We need more fucks on this record, more man. Fucks, nigga. <laughs> Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ice Cube was the youngest member of the group, and he took a different approach to being an artist that actually traps most artists. Fear, he just didn't have any. Early in the game, when I was, you know, still young, still not really sure how far it was going to take me, I made, I made a vow to myself that I wouldn't let the game change me, that I was just going to be myself no matter from the clubhouse to corporate. I'm going to just be myself and uh, let the chips fall where they may. But at the end of the day, I'm gonna still be happy with who I am. 
you know, whether I blow up and, and, and then fall off or whatever, I just vowed that I was going to be happy with who I am, no matter what's my status in the game. For the next six weeks they recorded, Dr. Dre was facing the task of putting this album together creatively. I go to a lot of um, oldie shops, you know. They have this thing in, in Los Angeles. They call it the oldie show. They have every Sunday. I listen to that, you know. And I might hear something. I say, hmm, maybe we can use that, sample it or something. And I listen for the name and go to the oldie shop the next day and pick it up. Sometimes you might hear a, a whole part that's real clean, you know, that's just by itself that you might want to sample. Say, yo, that's depth. I'm using that. And a lot of times you can just hear like a, a hey. Some, something like that. As they were putting the album together, they knew it was wildly different than anything else out. And they realized it started with Compton and the things that they were experiencing living there. It was important for them to vividly share these experiences. It was a world that unless you're from, you're not privy to. Unless you're from there, you don't know what's going on there. Our records was a safe distance where you could visit Compton from a safe distance. But you can get up close. Yeah, get all those suburban kids that that opportunity to 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 experience this shit. So now you care about what's going on now because you heard about what's going on. You interested. Now when you hear Compton, you don't be like, where, what is that? You be like, oh, it's going down there. Let me pay attention. So, you know, paying attention, then we, we able to shed light on some of the bullshit that's going down too. You know, it's just, to me, that's what made people open up to what we was doing, what we were saying. We, we presented it in a way that they could digest it, they can comprehend it, and they could sympathize with what we was going through. And it's, it's great music. And it's it great like shock value, and too. And if, if we would have did it any softer than what we did, it wouldn't have gotten the attention that it did. You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't have worked. But, yeah, it, wouldn't, it definitely wouldn't have worked. They knew that radio airplay was going to be damn near impossible, but they wanted to tell the stories of the things they were seeing, and there was no sugarcoating that. The energy was crazy. It was just about fun. It was just free, fun. Imagine it's just us in the studio. Yeah. We're paying for the shit ourselves. Cause easy, well, Easy's paying for it, and we're just sitting there just creating. I mean, Easy, we used to bump heads creatively. Every character, every character we knew coming by. You know, we was doing the record in one room, but in the little lobby it was just always cracking somebody was always up, up in there just hanging out man easy used to get into arguments all the time about what was gonna go on the record what wasn't going on the record like, all the time you know but we come we always come to a, a cool compromise and it was always this mutual respect because we knew we were both trying to get something that was great you know what I'm saying so we arguing but we know we're both trying to get something great it's just about okay what the fuck is that gonna be you know so uh, we argue you stop finish the record go party so they released the album nwa and the posse nine months later that album was actually gold and on august 8th 1988 nwa released their official first album straight out of compton and the album was an instant hit exploding out of the la area to the rest of the world The first four songs on the album were sort of a murderous row of intense graphic storytelling straight out of Compton. That was the best introduction to the group, the best introduction to the album. Dr. Dre was a master at production, making these giant sized beats and samples and just how meticulous it sounded. Track two was Fuck the Police, which created a national firestorm of criticism as they told stories of police abuse and their frustrations with that abuse. 
in the Straight Outta Compton movie, they reenacted a moment where the group was recording and they went outside of the studio because they were recording in an area not where they lived, in an area where they just didn't really fit. And the police came through and harassed them and assaulted them. In fact, Jerry Heller had to come out and stop the police. As they returned to the studio, Ice Cube came up with the idea. And Dre was reluctant to record this at first. But fuck the police connected with everyone. And the hook of the song became a national slogan to this day. In 1988, 78 law enforcement officers were killed in the line of duty. Violent crime was at an all-time high, and the FBI sent a letter to Ruthless Records offering their disgust at this project and the song. This was another example of the Streisand effect. If you're not sure what that is, Google it. The group publicized the letter from the FBI, which made the album even more popular. The third track on Straight Outta Compton was Gangsta Gangsta, another tightly produced Dre track with intense beats and amazing storytelling. They were rapping about the type of things happening on the streets of Compton and L.A. And N.W.A. were the reporters. Other songs on the album, If It Ain't Rough, Parental Discretion Advised, Eight Ball, Dope Man were all amazing. They would actually go for airplay too. Straight Outta Compton, Gangsta Gangsta, and Express Yourself had radio edits, and as the popularity of the group grew, so did the radio airplay. In fact, Express Yourself was an inspiring song, and radio embraced that. That probably got the most airplay out of all the songs on that particular album. Dr. Dre was in his bag on Express Yourself. He put this haunting whistle behind the beat, which made the song so addictive. The, um, the whistle. It's nothing but a, um, a straight beat. If we took that whistle out, <laughs> it probably wouldn't be as, as haunting as you say, you know. But that whistle is the, is, it's like Public Enemy's um, Rubber Without a Pause. If you took out the, it'd be a whole different thing, you know what I'm saying? Straight Outta Compton was one of the greatest debut albums in music history, not just hip hop. And N.W.A. had a goal for their music and they nailed it out the gate. They had no idea what they were doing would have this kind of impact. At the time, you know, we thought those records were going to be, they had a section in the record store where they would play all the dirty comedy oh. records like Richard Pryor. Uh, you could get an Eddie Murphy record over there, Red Fox, Dolomite. You can get all them kind of records. So we thought our record was going to be over there in that dirty section. So when they started to put it, out front where all the regular hip hop was and people just start buying it. We knew we had a style that was unique, that was different, but you know, there was other people who, who was dibbling and dabbling in, in what I would call gangster rap. You know, you had Ice T out there, Schooly D. Uh, he had a song called PSK. And then you had Boogie Down Productions that did a record called Criminal Minded that easily loved that record. So, it was a few people who had doubled and dabbled in that style. I mean, that became Ice-T's signature style. I think Ice-T and N.W.A. were the first two real jump-offs, and then the Ghetto Boys came through, and it was other groups, but that's kind of how it jumped off, and that's how it started. Straight Outta Compton would go on and sell over 3 million copies. 80% of the sales came from majority white suburban areas across America. We had no idea that it was going to blow up this major, you know, 
because every time we went in the studio, we was basically just trying to make records that was going to rock our neighborhood or just rock L.A. We wanted to become L.A. stars. We, we wasn't even thinking any further than Los Angeles, to tell you the truth. Maybe Oakland, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that was the limit of our thinking when we went in the studio and made these records. We didn't know? think nobody cared what we was going through. Locally, but we didn't think like the world would give a damn about gang banging and, yeah, yeah, and dope yeah. dealing in, in, in L.A. Compton and South Central and Long Beach and Watts and all that. It's not a hub of hip hop. You know, what I mean, we on the fringes. The hub is Brooklyn, is the Bronx, is Harlem. So we over here thinking we just going to do stuff that we care about in the hood. In addition to the label receiving the letter from the FBI, MTV banned the group's videos. Now, MTV was the primary national resource for you to share your music. And they just started to share hip hop songs. And if you recall, or maybe you don't know, there was sort of an outcry over them not playing Michael Jackson when Michael Jackson went his heyday. And actually, Michael Jackson broke those doors down. And Ice Cube was not having it. MTV. <laughs> Fire. Profanity. Yeah. A lot of people can, re, you know, relate to profanity to, to. But despite being banned in many places, N.W.A. sold three million copies of their Straight Outta Compton album. Their message that cops abused them when they were growing up hit home with a lot of people. Five white guys walking together are friends. Five black guys walking together is a gang. In the police eyes. You know what I'm saying? And they have you like this and head down and you be on the concrete. As the music started to deeply infiltrate suburban America, there was a bit of panic happening, and it started with their names, Niggas With Attitudes. N.W.A. was the first, the first gangster rap group, bold, foul-mouthed, with a name that offended people. Niggas With Attitudes. <laughs> and we don't mean it in like the, uh, the type of way, like the bigot type of way. We mean it as in, uh, as, as, we, as we talking to each other, I'm going to be like, niggas, shut up, or something like that. There was a groundswell of people who took offense to N.W.A. and everything they stood for. They may have tolerated rap. Yes, the artist curse, but this was something different. And they had a name for this subgenre and they called it gangster rap. And N.W.A. and Eazy-E was the face of this. Basically, gangster rap, I guess it's like telling the real and not holding back, giving up, you know, the reality from the street point of view. And like by us being from the streets, we know how to report it. I tell, you know, basically what's going on. Gangster rap is so controversial that some record companies are putting out two versions of gangster music videos with and without guns because MTV won't air gratuitous violence. And some radio stations are now refusing to play violent rap songs. Let's take um, the current record by Snoop Dogg. He makes a reference to 187 on an undercover cop. 187 is the California police code for murder. There's no consequence expressed in any of these actions. This is a simple glorification of doing these types of things. Those types of records we don't want aired on V103.9. There was now bullseye level of attention given to gangster rap. Record companies that make money off of, of a pain and degradation must be challenged to stop doing it. And challenged that, how? What well, do you... In some instances, they must be boycotted. We must take the profit out of the pain. Do you think these rap artists have a responsibility to their community as role models to these kids? Indeed, the rap artists have a responsibility. Those who pay them have a responsibility. But those who set the context have an even greater responsibility. If there were not such easy access to guns and drugs 
and so much unemployment and so much abandonment, the rapper would be abstract. The painful reality is that the rapping is real. And somehow I get the impression that, that basic white mass media was to focus on, on rap and not reality. And I say, if you're going to cover violence, cover reality, not just rap. Rap is an, an extension of the culture. Let's break up the violence in the culture. And I hope y'all put that on camera because that's real. Don't just pick and choose stuff out of here to fit me on one side and the rappers on the other. These are our children in trouble. They are in pain. Hip-hop legend Russell Simmons, who was running Def Jam at the time, was always a protector of the culture in this era. The fact is that there are a lot of gangster records right now. Uh, there's a lot of voices for people who had no voice before. And when Sticky Fingers said, I hate your guts and I hope you die, my name is Sticky Fingers, my life is a lie. I want you to feel that in your chest. I want you to understand he's third generation 40 projects and he's that mad. Maybe if there were jobs there, he wouldn't be as angry. But in the meantime, he might rob you. And that's a reality. This genre would open up the floodgates for other storytellers across the country. Gangsta Rap was creating new opportunities for young people, specifically folks with criminal records. You just got out of prison. Eight months. What were you in for? For an assault on another gang member. I was inside a, uh, like a halfway house or a youth home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you're a rapper? I'm a rapper, writer, a writer, a ranger, everything. So this music that is being so maligned is actually kind of giving you a purpose in life and something instructive it's to do? It's giving me the only, the only avenue I felt I had, you know. In a lot of songs and a lot of videos, they're featured um, young men with guns, that sort of thing. Young, any of you guys carry guns? Do you? Incriminate mm-hmm. ourselves on you camera. No, 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 we don't carry guns. We carry switch He says with a smile. <laughs> I mean, really, seriously, do you? you carry guns? No. No? So you guys don't? You feel like you don't have to? It's just the life that we live, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just where we stay, I mean, you never know what can happen. There's people dying every day that you know. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The bigger story that was happening in the media, though, was that this music was causing the violence and the crime that was happening in America. They say rap promotes violence and gangster rap does this and everything else. And I don't think gangster rap promotes violence at all. I think it's the person, you know. A song, a rap song doesn't make a person go out and shoot people or go out and rape people and everything else. I think it's the person. And it just wasn't the general market media that was attacking N.W.A. Within the black community, there was a deeper criticism of the group, mainly focused on their name and the use of niggas so much in their music. I have some lyrics here from some of the songs that you've done in your career. And to be very honest, many of this, much of this I can't even say on television, but I want to read some of this to you. Um, So what about the bitch that got shot? F her. You think I care about a bitch? I ain't a sucker. Right. Um songs titled... That's not talking about women, though. 
What is it talking a about? A lot of them bitches. It's a difference. I figure a bitch is uh, someone that does like scandalous things to you. You have another. <laughs> you have another song called "Real Niggas." Why do you guys call yourself this word that has well, been? We so have. Funny? We didn't. We didn't give ourselves this name now. But right now in society, you guys are calling yourself niggers right. a lot but more than... we didn't give ourselves that name. People have been calling us niggers for years, and so we carry that word. We're, right now, the word is like saying homeboy. Everywhere they went, the media would inquire about their lyrics and make the connection to violence, and it really started to bother them. Okay, they could tell singers, well, you profiting off love. Or something like that, you know. Movie makers, you know, you know, when you make a movie like Mississippi Burning, oh, you adding to the problem. Just or like, you know, something like Roots that don't make everybody want to go out and get a slave. You know what I'm saying? Look at Michael Jackson. He got all these gang bangers behind them and shit. They don't fuck with him, right? Yeah. I guess he capitalized. Everybody got to talk about something, right? You know. I can see that what we was talking about wasn't happening. It wasn't true. See, if you talk <laughs> about like stuff like Jazzy Jeff or LL Cool J, don't nobody bother you. You know, because they ain't talking about nothing. You know, they talking, but they ain't saying nothing. When you talk about what's really going on, don't nobody want to hear it. You know, they always want to bring up a problem or bring up excuses that you're talking about violence. But if you, if you just think about it, if you talk about what's going on in life, it's violence and whatever you talk about. I don't know, man. We, we ain't no scientists or, you know, nothing like that. We're not trying to change the world or nothing like that. We're just, we're just telling people, we're just telling a certain... A certain uh, unit, you know, that, that you got to treat me as if I lived in Beverly Hills, you know, like you treat them. You can't just, well, since I'm in Beverly Hills, I'm going to treat everybody nice. But when I go to Compton, you know, they ain't nothing but bad kids selling drugs out there, you know, and they ain't the case on every kid. Jaja Gabor. Man, that pissed me off. See, Jaja Gabor is like the police. She socked the police. They gave her three days. Now, my mama's soccer police, they gonna put her in there. And they let her pick pick any jail she wanted to do her time in. Mom's would've been in L.A. County. They let her pick. They let her pick whatever one. You know she gonna pick Beverly Hills. She told told the court they should treat people in Beverly Hills, rich people, better. There was also the Stop the Violence movement that was taking shape in hip-hop. There was self-destruction. There was the West Coast version of that. And many assume these songs came about because of the success of N.W.A. People are going to do what they want to do anyway. Yeah. You know, music does not have that much influence on, on a person's real mind because they still got to go out there and survive and they got to get what they got to get to live, you know, because it's, it's rough. Just like this, that record came out, Stop the Violence. Has anything stopped? No. <laughs> not a goddamn thing. <laughs> the group was also facing backlash at home. The folks in Compton did not like their city being portrayed the way N.W.A. and Easy were portraying it. You know, you get tired of that stuff. Then all of a sudden, somebody wants to come forward and make a rap and, and a song and, and talk about niggas shooting dice and uh, bitches in wet T-shirts and things like that. We said, well, 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 wait a minute. We don't want to see that projected in our city. Nothing such as this has ever happened in Compton. It doesn't happen. California's politicians were furious that NWA's songs encouraged violence against other blacks, against cops, and they accused him of trying to incite crime. Ice Cube's response to me that day. Somebody wanted to do a crime, they had that mentality there anyway. It, it, it wasn't our album which turned somebody that was a nice kid into this vicious criminal. The city of Compton rejected the group's attempts to film a video in the city. 
Rap star Eazy-E will be able to film portions of a new music video in Compton after all. But during a heated city council meeting last night, the mayor dressed down Eazy-E for ruining the city's image. And we believe now that we have come up with an agreement that would allow these gentlemen to shoot their video without depicting women as uh, whores, uh, without depicting African-American men as animals. Bradley did not like the script he read for a music video Eazy-E wanted to shoot in Compton. So the two sides met for nine hours and ironed out a deal. Eazy-E will still remain Eazy-E, but we're not going to portray Compton as a bad city because Compton is a good city. Initially, NWA was just a bunch of young guys from Los Angeles making music about life in L.A. They didn't realize that the things that they were saying and the things that they were doing would affect the whole entire country, not just L.A. We only spent six weeks on this record. It took us six weeks to record this record. And that's without recording on the weekends. So that's how much energy we put into it. Like I said, we were just trying to make some records for our neighborhood. We were only trying to make a few bucks. We wasn't gold. We had no idea what was about to happen. So I'm like, damn, they like that. When I started hearing that, they want us to do shows in Chicago. They want us to do shows in Tennessee. And yeah. it's like, damn, we we ain't locals no more. Right. Oh, also, <laughs> when I saw Axl Rose in one of his videos yeah. with an NWA hat on, like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? Yeah. <laughs> with the success of Straight Outta Compton came the pressure to make another successful album. The fans now had a tremendous appetite for more music like this more storytelling about Compton, more incredible production from Dr. Dre. Three months later, a few days before the Thanksgiving holiday and the Black Friday shopping day, on November 23rd, 1988, Ruthless Records released a solo project from Eazy-E called Easy Does It. Backed by better radio songs, the album was gold by February of 89, then platinum by that summer. Easy was the first star of the group to go solo. And in the spring of 1989, the group embarked on a nationwide tour. This was when they really saw the impact of their music. And unfortunately, the negative reactions to fuck the police. On the tour stop in Detroit in the summer of 89, the police demanded that they do not perform fuck the police and were warned that they would be arrested if they did. Of course, they weren't intimidated and performed the song. It was like undercover cops in the audience, you know. While we were performing, we started doing the song, Fuck the Police. They tried to bum rush on stage and get us, you know. So they came on stage to try to arrest us and show everybody, you can't say fuck the police in Detroit. You know, they're going to make an example out of us. But they didn't arrest us on the stage, so they, they little plan they had didn't work. So, you know, we got a letter from the FBI telling us about our record, Fuck the Police, and how they didn't appreciate the way the lyrics was you know, presented to everybody, and we got a lot of flack over that, but 98% of the police department in Detroit, the police force is black. After they came to our hotel and holded us, harassed us, they was gonna arrest us, right? They was talking to us. You know, they just had to do it to make an example, like I was saying, say an example that you can't say fuck the police in Detroit, you know, not get to- Get away with it. Yeah, not get away with it, you know, and after they had us hold for about an hour or so, they was talking to us, you know, telling us we understand where you're coming from and all that. We just doing our job. Because when we go in and do a show, we only there for one night. You know, we say fuck the police one night. And I guess they figured if we said it on the stage, everybody in Detroit would say it every day and then they have a big problems on their hands. As the tour continued that summer, the next solo project to be released was not a member of NWA, but the DOC who released his debut album, No One Can Do It Better. 
which featured the classic It's Funky Enough, which became a massive hit nationwide, rising to top 12 on the Hot 100. But you can really hear the brilliance in that album of a Dre beat with the song The Formula. In fact, you should listen to it now and close your eyes and just listen to the kind of beats Dre was making in that era. And once again, Dre continued his successful production style without missing a beat. During this time, Dre was dating Michelle A. Remember, she was the singer on the world-class record crew song, Turn Off the Lights. So in the fall of 1989, Ruthless Records, through their partnership with Atlantic, which, by the way, which is what the DOC was on, released her debut self-titled album with three top five singles, including the timeless song Something in My Heart. Clearly, 1989 was the pinnacle of success for Ruthless, Eazy-E, and N.W.A. But there was so much that was about to happen. This story has so many layers. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast. We'll continue the story of Eazy-E and NWA, part two, how it all fell apart, including the shocking AIDS diagnosis and sudden death of Eazy-E. Once Eazy was against me, you know, Jerry convinced Eazy I was a troublemaker. So then Eazy started to talk to everybody. And then, you know, pretty soon I was the odd man out. I left because I was like, this ain't gonna work. They're not gonna fix it. Trey said, well, look, I'm not really from Compton. Everybody used you against me. He said, I'm over here, ruthless, and I got this, this deal that for a bonus, if I do two records, I'll probably get a swimming pool in my backyard. Right. I said, that's gotta be crazy. What your contract says. He said, I've never seen a contract. See, Dre now works for somebody that used to work for him. And how he claims that death row is his, it's somebody else. It's a bodyguard that used to work for Dre. Mm-hmm. Dre now works for him. So he all screwed up. What's your relationship with uh, Ice Cube and uh, Dr. Dre? Or do you have any relationship with them? Yeah, we cool. Me, Cube, and Dre, we all cool. You know what I'm saying? It's just, I don't talk to Eric. Like, you know what I'm saying? We don't talk. Tonight, the 31-year-old rap artist is hospitalized in Los Angeles in critical condition. He was admitted three weeks ago complaining of breathing problems, apparently unaware he had been infected with the AIDS virus. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC on Instagram, get the backstory. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.